This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash. Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. This is the Nations of Canada podcast, episode 25, The Canadian Theatre. This episode will introduce a theme that will become a familiar one over the next century and a half, imperial warfare. As Cardinal Richelieu transformed New France from a trading post on the St. Lawrence into a full-fledged colony, he brought Canada into the global competition between European powers. We'll be getting an initial glimpse at the consequences of that competition today. European wars were no longer contained to the European continent. Inevitably, the handful of colonists at Quebec were swept up in imperial affairs, way above their pay grade. However, while we'll often see much larger global forces imposing their will on our narrow Canadian story, we should not ignore the other side of the coin. The grandiose proclamations, drafted by men who ran transcontinental empires from places like Paris, London, or Amsterdam, tended to overstate their ability to control events on the ground. As we'll see time and again in this podcast, what looks from a distance like imperial competition driving local conflicts in faraway places like Canada is, upon closer inspection, the opposite. In many cases, European global politics acted as a convenient excuse for local actors to resolve grievances or settle old scores. More than once, we'll see supposedly all-powerful monarchs forced into policy decisions by the more or less independent actions of colonials half a world away. The conflict we'll be tracking in this episode was a rather small-scale version of that scenario, but it'll become a familiar pattern. But enough of the vague and abstract introduction. What was this conflict that so rudely interrupted Richelieu's French-Canadian reforms in the mid-1620s? The first thing to note is that the immediate threat to the colony at Quebec didn't come, as I have hinted at in recent episodes, from the Dutch. Instead, it came from the English, who we've seen poking their noses around the periphery of French Canada before which means it's probably worthwhile to catch up on English activities in the region. We first saw the English making a play for a colony in Arctic Canada around 50 years previous to the events of this episode. But that project had been quickly abandoned. We've also seen an English presence in the disputed and nebulous territory the French knew as Acadia. Though, here again, initial English attempts to settle on the Kennebec River were almost immediately abandoned. English Puritans had founded a colony at Plymouth, a bit further south, but it was a small and insular community. Large-scale settlement of New England would not come until the 1630s. That leaves Virginia, which was turning into a thriving plantation colony, producing tobacco for the European market. Here was a colony with the manpower and resources to truly threaten the fledgling colony on the St. Lawrence. As we've seen, Virginian military power had effectively erased the French colonial presence in Acadia back in 1613. However, the Chesapeake was quite far from the St. Lawrence, and the Virginians had little to gain from a costly campaign in Canada. Quebec and Jamestown operated in completely different regions and markets, and weren't competitors in any real sense. So the Englishmen we'll be following in this episode are a new group, or rather quite an old one, the fishermen and fur traders who had been plying the seas around Newfoundland since almost the beginning of the podcast. 
the growing strength of French Canada in the first two decades of the 17th century had limited the access of independent English traders to the indigenous market. But tensions between England and France in Europe presented an opportunity to reverse that trend. Despite Newfoundland's central role in several early episodes, we haven't spent much time there recently. But the island had played host to several English attempts to tap the Canadian fur market, or create a base of operations for the English fishing fleet. You may recall, way back when, that Jacques Cartier got a lead on the existence of the Gulf of St. Lawrence thanks to French fishermen who plied the west coast of Newfoundland. The French were fishing there in the first place because their English rivals had successfully staked out prime real estate on the eastern Atlantic coast of the island. These were the Grand Banks fisheries that hosted a virtually infinite volume of cod. Though for most of the 16th century, the English dominance of the Atlantic coast of Newfoundland was informal. English vessels prowled the region in large numbers every summer, but there were no legal or diplomatic restrictions on French, Spanish, Portuguese, and Basque ships dropping their lines in the area too. The Newfoundland fisheries were not exactly well regulated. Every season saw a free-for-all. Things started to change in the 1590s, when the war between England and Spain raised the stakes in the Newfoundland fishery game. Walter Raleigh, one of Queen Elizabeth's leading sea dogs, took the lead in securing English interests in Newfoundland. We caught a glimpse of Raleigh earlier in the podcast in the 1580s. You may recall that Raleigh took part in his half-brother Humphrey Gilbert's ill-fated attempt to colonize Newfoundland back then. Gilbert found that the fishermen of Bristol didn't welcome official state representatives looking over their shoulder. Even worse, Gilbert himself was lost at sea as he returned home in failure. Luckily, Raleigh missed out on that adventure, as his ship had turned back for repairs during the initial crossing. Now, over a decade later, Raleigh oversaw a campaign to clear all rivals out of Newfoundland's Atlantic coast. By the time England and Spain formalized their peace in 1604, privateers had made Newfoundland a very unfriendly place for non-English fishermen. Back in the 1570s, an average of 30 English fishing vessels traveled to Newfoundland every summer. By 1610, that number had multiplied by a factor of 7 to over 200. Newfoundland was effectively an English island. This was fortuitous timing, because around the same time, Champlain was establishing a permanent French presence on the St. Lawrence. Had Newfoundland still been a chaotic free-for-all, the French may have been able to wield significant influence there. In fact, in 1608, the same year Champlain established the colony at Quebec, a sailor out of Bristol named John Guy was surveying the eastern coastline of Newfoundland, looking for a suitable place for a permanent settlement. He was backed by a group of investors based out of London and Bristol. The goal was much the same as that of Champlain and de Mont in Quebec, a monopoly company that could regulate the Newfoundland fisheries from a permanent colony. In a sense, it was a no-brainer. The end of the Spanish War had freed up English capital for investments. And unlike the relatively unknown world of Virginia, English sailors had detailed knowledge of Newfoundland's coast, especially its best natural harbors. English military power ensured security, and cod was even more of a can't-miss commodity than fur or tobacco. By 1610, the investors were ready to make their move. The enterprise was a collaborative affair. Newfoundland veterans out of Bristol, such as John Guy, took the lead on the ground. Meanwhile, merchants in London formed most of the capital. The investment group was led by Ralph Freeman, who had a stake in the Virginia Company and the Mediterranean trade, but was most noteworthy for his dominant position in the whaling business. As we've seen, this was a turbulent time in the whaling industry, as Henry Hudson had just discovered fertile new whaling grounds off Spitsbergen, in the Arctic north of Scandinavia. Freeman would go on to parlay the proceeds of that business into a political career as mayor of London. 
Joining professionals like Freeman were amateur investors, country gentlemen looking for a bit of glory and desperate for a get-rich-quick scheme. The key figure in this group was Percival Willoughby, a man with a serious debt problem. Willoughby had taken on this debt through an ambitious marriage to his cousin, Bridget Willoughby. Bridget came with an impressive estate, Grand Wollaton Hall, which her father had just built outside of Nottingham in the 1580s. It's still there today, open for visitors. I recommend it. Christopher Nolan used the exterior for Wayne Manor in one of his Batman movies. Anyway, Woolerton Hall was a nice feather in Willoughby's cap, but it came with a crippling debt of £30,000. Resolving these financial problems, while still retaining his status as a leading gentleman in the kingdom, became his life's mission. Though not one he had much success in. At one point, Willoughby was ordered to take up residence in Fleet Prison until his debts could be repaid, though I'm not sure if that sentence was ever actually carried out. Eventually, Willoughby's need for cash drew him into the Newfoundland Company. His long list of creditors included some of the London men financing the project, and they seemed to have convinced him to leverage his remaining assets in order to invest in a stake himself. But our interest in Willoughby is not limited to his financial problems. What's important for us is how he imagined Newfoundland would make a return on his investment. To this point, Willoughby had been attempting to pay down his debt through the energy market. England was urbanizing at a tremendous pace in the early 17th century, and all those town dwellers needed to heat their homes. Traditional fuels like firewood failed to meet the demand. Densely populated towns quickly depleted local forests. The answer was coal. And luckily for Willoughby, some of his properties in Northamptonshire had loads of the stuff. Best of all, these mines were less than 100 kilometers from the massive London market, a veritable black hole sucking in an endless supply of coal. Willoughby poured money into mining operations to reap the benefits of his good fortune. You've got to spend money to make money. Unfortunately, the London market may as well have been on the moon. Transporting coal overland was insanely expensive, and Willoughby couldn't compete with the cheap coal that was being shipped out of Newcastle, down the coast to London. For all his efforts, he'd only increased his debt with nothing to show for it. In Newfoundland, however, Willoughby saw the answer to his problems. All reports suggested that the rocky North Atlantic island was full of useful minerals, especially iron and coal. Willoughby imagined a transatlantic hub that would supplant Newcastle in the English market. Who knows, maybe he could build his own smelting operation in Newfoundland and become a global supplier of the basic commodities of urban life. In the end, the Newfoundland company attracted 48 investors and secured a charter from King James I. Though crucially, the charter didn't include a monopoly regulating the Newfoundland fishery. In part, this was due to lobbying from Bristol. Not everyone in the Western Port was on board with the idea of a company that stuck its nose into what had been a profitable business for more than a century. Instead, in the summer of 1610, John Guy and 38 settlers sailed to Newfoundland with a plan somewhat similar to the one Samuel de Champlain was following at that very moment on the St. Lawrence. The goal was to show the value a permanent settlement could provide, thereby securing a monopoly from the state. Guy's destination was the Avalon Peninsula, the southeastern corner of Newfoundland that sticks out in the Atlantic, where St. John sits today. The region had long been used by vessels coming to and from Europe. The coastline had many natural harbors, and it made for the shortest distance between the old and new worlds. In August, the settlers landed at Cupper's Cove in Conception Bay, on the north side of the Avalon. The early returns were quite positive. Unlike the initial experiments at Jamestown in Virginia, there was no starving time where the colonists suffered through a process of trial and error in living off the land. This was a region the English knew well, in waters that were frequently trafficked. 
Keeping the settlement supplied from Bristol was relatively easy. Within two years, the colony's population had almost doubled to 62. The company was even constructing a second settlement nearby, recruiting more migrants. In 1612, however, the colony's good fortune ran out. The most immediate culprit was a pirate named Peter Easton. Easton had been one of those privateers that Queen Elizabeth had commissioned to clear enemy vessels out of Newfoundland in the last years of the Spanish War. In order to help him achieve this, the Queen had granted Easton the right to impress English fishermen into his crews. This, after all, was war, and every Englishman had to do his part. When the new monarch, James, signed his peace with Spain in 1604, Easton was out of a job, but only technically. In practice, the English crown had little control over what went on in Newfoundland, and Easton decided to continue his profitable work. For several years, he followed a seasonal pattern. In the summer, he extracted protection money from fishermen around Newfoundland, and also looted the occasional Spanish interloper, or stubborn captain, out of Bristol. Then he'd use his proceeds to fund raids on Spanish shipping in the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, or the open Atlantic. By the time the Newfoundland Company was being formed, Easton had built something akin to a company himself, though of course he didn't possess a royal charter. He did have financiers, though. Small-time merchants in Cornwall assessed Easton's business model and found it to be sound. Regular investments soon followed. Which brings us back to 1612 and the two-year-old colony at Cupper's Cove. Easton decided that his business venture was coming into conflict with that of the Newfoundland Company. He anchored his ships provocatively offshore and demanded that the colonists contribute to the maintenance of his police force that kept Newfoundland safe. Guy and the colonists responded by fortifying their settlement and answering the pirates' demands with defiance. In the short term, their resilience won out. Easton was not willing to escalate things beyond bluster. He operated outside the normal boundaries of the law, but declaring war on a royally chartered company was too flagrant, even for him. Within a few years, Easton decided that Newfoundland was garnering too much attention from the authorities back home. He shifted his business to friendlier waters, so to speak, and eventually retired to the north of Italy, a wealthy man. But although Cupper's Cove successfully stood up to Easton's aggression, the ordeal revealed fundamental flaws with the colony. In two years, the settlement had made no progress towards self-sufficiency. Newfoundland's rocky soil was not amenable to agriculture, and the settlers were entirely dependent on supply runs from the company. And while Easton had been on the prowl, nothing had gotten through. The winter of 1612-1613 was shaping up to be a bitter, hungry one. Many of the colonists, including John Guy, decided that they didn't want to find out precisely how bitter and hungry it would be. They sailed for England. This was just the beginning of the colony's troubles. It quickly became apparent that there was a split within the company. Guy and the other Bristol men clashed with the leadership in London over the treatment of fishermen. Officially, the company took a haughty and condescending line on the fishermen. Again, this was not dissimilar to the French experience on the St. Lawrence, where Champlain saw the fur traders as short-sighted, too self-interested to see the long-term benefits of colonization. Guy and the Bristol men sensed a similar attitude among the London investors. Likely, there was a bit of regionalism thrown in, too. Who was this company for? Bristol fishermen or London financiers? It didn't help that Willoughby and the London men he owed his money to were pursuing some truly implausible ideas. So long as the colony had to import basic supplies, the kind of manufacturing Willoughby imagined would be ruinously expensive. But rather than face that reality, Willoughby proposed that they build a smelting operation on the island and until the mines were up and running, even ship European iron across the Atlantic for processing. 
Realizing that this was spiraling out of control, most of the Bristol men pulled out of the project, severely limiting the company's local knowledge and expertise. Many anxious investors followed suit, and by 1616, the company looked in danger of collapsing. The remaining investors, Willoughby for instance, were fully committed and had no choice but to double down. The only way forward was to expand and hope that future profits would cover the costs. Like Martin Frobisher's backers in the 1570s, failure simply wasn't an option. By the end of the 1610s, the Bristol and London factions were battling it out in the courts. The London investors had an advantage in finances, but the Bristol men were highly effective lobbyists. Their fishing fleets acted as an important naval reserve that the Crown was reluctant to alienate. The result was stagnation. Settlements along Conception Bay remained an important part of the support system for the Newfoundland fisheries, but Willoughby's grander schemes of colonization fizzled. He himself remained convinced that there were significant iron deposits on Bell Island, which sat in the bay, but it gradually became clear that no one else saw the project as feasible. By the 1620s, the English state was moving in a new direction in Newfoundland. The old company was by then defunct, and King James struck upon a new use for the North Atlantic Island, which is a good place to segue back to the theme we opened this episode with, European power politics. I mentioned at the outset that England and France went to war in the 1620s, with New France inevitably drawn into the conflict. That war was the result of some confusing and counterintuitive diplomatic developments in Europe. I'll do my best to present the abridged version here. If you want a more lengthy description, check out my other podcast, Early Stuart England. In the 1620s, the great foreign policy issue facing both England and France was the Thirty Years' War in Germany. For England, the problem was that the forces of Catholicism were crushing Protestant Europe. Catholic France, as you can imagine, saw things quite differently. For Richelieu and Louis XIII, the problem was that those forces of Catholicism were led by France's great rival, the Habsburg dynasty. Initially, both nations tried to resolve the crisis by exerting diplomatic pressure on the Habsburgs, whose imperial and Spanish branches led the Catholic war effort. Pushing especially hard for a diplomatic rather than military solution was George Calvert, Secretary of State to King James I of England. Calvert was partially motivated by religion. Publicly, he was a Protestant, a requirement to serve in England's government. But privately, Calvert was Catholic. And from his office, he did all he could to prevent England from joining the religious conflict in Europe. However, as the war continued to rage and the Spanish refused to negotiate in good faith, popular pressure turned against Calvert's diplomatic campaign. And here is where the Newfoundland segue I mentioned earlier comes in. As maintaining the peace became less and less likely, Calvert turned his attention to another project. If England was about to enter the religious maelstrom of the Thirty Years' War, Calvert worried that the kingdom would no longer be safe for Catholics like himself. The Protestant majority would see Catholics as potential traitors. So he revived an old idea from the 1580s, using Newfoundland as a kind of refuge for England's Catholic minority. While he still retained some influence with James, Calvert got the king to grant a new charter for the Avalon Peninsula to act as a colony under Calvert's direct supervision. By the middle of the 1620s, the colony was making good progress, with over a 100 residents. But for now, our attention returns to the more immediate consequences of Calvert's diplomatic failure. As I hinted at earlier, if England was going to intervene in the Protestant cause in Europe, they had a potential ally in Catholic France. Richelieu and Louis had little interest in seeing Habsburg domination of the continent, and so Protestant England and Catholic France struck an awkward partnership. The two kingdoms were allies of convenience, with their own agendas. 
Managing the alliance would require skilled statesmen on either side of the channel. Unfortunately, skilled statesmen were in short supply in 1620s England, and the Anglo-French alliance was bungled from the beginning. The main culprit was George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, the chief minister of James I, and when the king died in March 1625, his son, Charles I. First, Buckingham injected himself into French court politics, backing a failed palace coup against Richelieu. And if that wasn't bad enough, as part of the scheme, Buckingham had tried to seduce the Queen of France, which did little to endear him to King Louis. For his part, Richelieu didn't really help things either, at one point using ships loaned by the English to subdue the Huguenots of La Rochelle. This badly undermined the alliance in English public opinion. The whole point of joining with the French was to defend the Protestant cause in Europe. Suppressing France's Protestant population was the exact opposite of that. As I say, the precise details of these shenanigans isn't that important for us here. What is important is that by 1627, the Anglo-French relationship had fallen apart, and the two former allies turned on each other. What that meant for the French and English residents of the New World was far from clear. London and Paris were focused entirely on Europe. Buckingham made plans to support the Huguenot enclave at La Rochelle with an expeditionary force, and Louis mobilized his forces to respond. Little thought was put into the far side of the Atlantic. In fact, Richelieu continued his reforms of New France as if nothing had changed. As we saw last episode, Richelieu was intent on transforming Quebec from a trading post into a regional capital in a transcontinental empire. His allies in this were the Jesuits and Champlain, who had long championed a more vigorous colonial policy. Losing out in these reforms were the merchants of the fur trade, who had always opposed costly colonization policies. In particular, Guillaume de Caen and his wider kinship network, the latest collection of merchants to manage the fur trade. In the spring of 1627, as Buckingham prepared his invasion fleet, Richelieu formalized this changing of the guard. He dissolved the de Caen Monopoly Company, maintaining the perfect run of Monopoly Companies dissolved before their term could be completed. In its place, Richelieu created a much different institution, the Company of New France, more commonly known as the Company of 100 Associates. As the name suggests, the company was backed by 100 investors, though unlike previous iterations of colonial companies, this group was heavily weighted towards political figures and court insiders rather than merchants. In keeping with Richelieu's vision, New France would now be governed as an imperial project first and a commercial one second. We'll get into how all this would actually work in a future episode, though, because as much as Canada played a role in Richelieu's long-term ambitions for France, he appears to have put almost no thought into its role in the present conflict with England. In fact, he made the disastrous decision to send the initial voyage of the new company without a naval escort. Far from seeing the Canadian theatre as an extension of the European conflict, Richelieu seems to have imagined it as completely separate. So if Richelieu didn't consciously extend the European conflict across the Atlantic, did the English? The main obstacle to a global English war effort was lack of resources. At this point, England was a second-rate European power, not in the same tier as the great French or Spanish states. Though a bigger problem was effectively harnessing the resources it did have. Buckingham's bungling wasn't winning the government much support, which was crucial as the Crown called a series of parliaments to raise funding for the war. Rather than contributing money, however, those parliaments sharply criticized the government and called for Buckingham's impeachment. As a result, England fought the war in Europe on a shoestring budget. There was no money at all for expanding the conflict across the Atlantic. So the English got a bit creative. Rather than using public funds to run the war in the New World, the state contracted the work out. 
This was a tactic that had worked well for the English in the past. As we've seen, during the Elizabethan Wars, privateers had been commissioned to clear enemy vessels off the Newfoundland coast. In the mid-1620s, a new group of entrepreneurs saw financial opportunity in the Canadian War and stepped forward. The general idea was to form investment groups that would act as colonial companies. Only, instead of being granted land by the crown, they would conquer it from the French. The king would then bestow all the usual monopoly privileges on the victors, allowing them to recoup the costs of war. Two groups quickly formed. The first, organized by a collection of Scots, had actually been interested in Canada for quite some time. As you may recall, before taking the English throne in 1603, James I of England had been James VI of Scotland, a title he retained. His son Charles now reigned as king of both nations too. As a result, he presided over a multicultural court, which included many of the Scots who had followed his father south. One of these Scots was William Alexander, a veteran courtier who had made his name through a series of poems and other literary works. The Stuart court, like many in early modern Europe, blended politics and the arts, and by the 1610s, Alexander was applying his romantic ideals to crown policy. He dreamed of a specifically Scottish colonial project to match the English settlements in the New World. At first, he lobbied for, and was granted, territory on the southeast coast of Newfoundland to develop his Scottish colony. But due to a lack of adequate funding, the scheme never got off the ground. In 1621, Alexander tried again, this time securing the rights to the region the French knew as Acadia. He had a grander name for it, though, New Scotland, or, more fitting for the literary man, the Latin Nova Scotia. There was a real opportunity, as the French presence in Acadia wasn't likely to offer much resistance. As you no doubt recall, French ambitions in Acadia had been dealt a serious blow by the Virginians, who burned Port Royal in 1613. But French traders remained active in the region. Officially, the territory was shared between Madame de Gercheville, who bought the rights to Greater Acadia to pursue her goal of a Jesuit mission, and Jean de Poutecourt, who was the proprietary owner of the settlement at Port Royal. Gercheville had more or less given up in her Jesuit mission after the disastrous raids of 1613, and Poutricourt exited the Acadian story with his death in 1615. Poutricourt's son, Charles de Biencourt, retained an interest in the claims he inherited from his father, though. You might remember him as the teenager who spent a year living with the Mi'kmaq. Biencourt attempted to rebuild Port Royal as a trading colony, but there was little interest back in France. He spent more and more of his time living among the Mi'kmaq, as Port Royal itself turned into a dilapidated collection of buildings that was only used in the summer by seasonal traders visiting from Europe. Biencourt died in 1623, at the age of 33, his dream of rebuilding his father's colony in Acadia still unrealized. Biencourt's claim on Port Royal was taken up by Charles Delator, Biencourt's longtime colleague who had also been on the original expedition to Acadia as a teenager. We'll get to know Delator a bit better in the future, but what's important for now is that the French hold on Acadia was as tenuous as it had been since the beginning of the century. This was an opportunity for William Alexander and his dreams of making Nova Scotia a reality. The handful of Frenchmen living in Acadia all year round were barely able to support themselves, never mind resist Scottish competitors. Again, though, this was a Scottish colony on paper only. Alexander had little experience in colonial affairs and struggled to plant any colonists in Nova Scotia. In 1622, he hired a ship to carry settlers and supplies to Cape Breton, the island that forms the northeastern tip of the modern province of Nova Scotia. However, Alexander had difficulty raising the funds for supplies, and few Scots seemed very interested in transatlantic migration. The developing plantations in Ulster, just across the Irish Sea, were far more attractive. 
The result was a disaster. The voyage went ahead despite its shortcomings, but it was obvious to everyone that they didn't have the necessary supplies to build a settlement. The expedition was forced to stop in Newfoundland. The would-be colonists appealed to the hospitality of the settlements there, and the ships returned to England, promising to bring more supplies the following summer. When the ships returned in the summer of 1623, they found that the original settlers had either died over the winter or been absorbed into the Newfoundland settlements. The only progress towards a Scottish colony was the mapping of the Cape Breton coast, which revealed a few settlement sites with some potential. Forced back to the drawing board, Alexander searched for a way to fund the settlement of Nova Scotia. He turned to an example of successful Anglo-Scottish colonization closer to home, Ulster. For the past generation, English and Scottish investors had been developing lands in the north of Ireland, seized after the suppression of a rebellion 20 years earlier. Men with capital to spare were attracted by the promise of property and noble titles if they took on the burden of developing the land and civilizing the native Irish. The lessons learned in the plantations of Ireland would end up being applied on the other side of the Atlantic. And one of those early students of Irish plantation was William Alexander. He proposed a similar scheme in Nova Scotia. Scottish speculators were encouraged to fund the settlement of families on Cape Breton. If after two years the land had been continuously occupied, the man who had supported the colonists would be granted ownership and an aristocratic title. They would, of course, have to pay Alexander a fee in exchange for him surrendering his personal claim of ownership. The scheme was officially announced at the end of 1624, but again met with a muted response from elite Scottish society. Carving out land and titles in Ireland was one thing, but would noble titles based on patches of wilderness on the other side of the world bestow any social status? Alexander tried to simplify things by removing the need for investors to oversee the colonization effort themselves. You could just pay a lump sum to the crown, part of which Alexander would use to resettle colonists himself. Essentially, the colony would be funded by selling aristocratic titles. But still, there was little appetite for colonization among the Scots. William Alexander's dream of Scotland taking its place among the other European nations on the global stage seemed unable to overcome the apathy of his countrymen. But suddenly, a new opportunity arose. In 1627, war broke out between England and France. Alexander could now recast his colonial project as a military venture. Overseas land development may have been a high-risk bet with long-delayed returns, but privateering expeditions were very popular as get-rich-quick schemes. However, Alexander wasn't the only one to see the opportunity. His main opposition in Canada would not be the French, but a rival English enterprise. I mentioned before that two groups sought to capitalize on the war between England and France. The second group, competing with Alexander Scots, were the Kirks, an English merchant family with a long history in French commerce. In fact, the patriarch of the family, Jarvis Kirk, had settled in Dieppe to oversee his business interests there. He married the daughter of a Huguenot merchant family, and his five sons, David being the most important for us, were born in the French port. As a prominent family in Normandy, the Kirks had plenty of dealings with another prominent merchant family in Normandy, the Collins. You know them as the group that held the French fur trade monopoly for a few years in the early 1620s. But, as we've just seen, shortly before the war with England, the Collins had been pushed out by Richelieu's reforms. This was not a state of affairs that the Collins were going to take lying down, and the Kirks were useful partners in staging this resistance. As English subjects, the Kirks had a unique advantage in defying the new French monopoly. In the winter of 1626-1627, the two families worked together on organizing a joint expedition the following summer. They would ignore Richelieu's new directives and trade in Canadian fur. 
The growing tensions between England and France would be a useful backdrop. Diplomatically speaking, the English state would probably not be enthusiastic about enforcing French law. Even better news came in the spring, when the Anglo-French relationship broke down completely. The planned voyage suddenly morphed into a privateering expedition, sanctioned by the King of England. Their mission was to displace the French from Canada, broadly speaking both the St. Lawrence and Acadia. Any spoils they collected along the way would be theirs to keep. Though, as we've seen in this episode, things were a bit more complicated than that. The central governments in Paris and London didn't play much of a role in the planning or execution of the coming conflict. In fact, it's not even accurate to say that the French and the English were the primary adversaries in the Canadian theatre. Although the Kirks and Alexander Scots were technically on the same side, they had conflicting goals. Alexander imagined that their mission was to clear out the French from the area so as to make room for his cherished Nova Scotia. For David Kirk, on the other hand, the objective was the creation of a new fur empire, overseen by his father and their French partners. The lack of a clear strategic vision from the English state all but guaranteed a conflict between the two groups. The war in Canada was entirely in their hands. On the other side of the conflict, the divisions were, if anything, even starker. As I just mentioned, the Kirks had French partners. This wasn't an English invasion so much as it was an attempt to reverse Richelieu's recent reforms. The colonial authorities in Paris had accumulated an impressive list of enemies in recent years. The Kahn family, for one, who hoped to restore their position in the fur trade. But we've also seen growing dissatisfaction from other corners of French Canada. For instance, translators like Etienne Brulé, who were rudely shunted aside as representatives within indigenous communities by the Jesuits. Or the Innu, who had long held a grudge against French pretensions of superiority and the westward drift of the fur trade. Next time, we'll see these conflicting agendas play out on the St. Lawrence and in Acadia. European geopolitics may have been the catalyst for war, but the fighting was driven by local Canadian interests. Music by Jason Shaw, audionautics.com. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.